It is always good to be together, and especially in the holiday season. Today, as we have uh, celebrated already, is the first official Sunday of Advent, uh, which is the uh, time that marks our journey toward Christmas. And it's the anticipation of God's promised Messiah coming into the world. And for followers of Jesus today, it also is a time when we're invited to anticipate Jesus coming again in glory. Our theme this year is a simple Christmas. And in a world uh, that is increasingly fast-paced, time-starved, overloaded with stimulation and information, where more is always better and too much is never enough, most of us recognize that at least on some level we could all use a greater measure of simplicity in our lives. Last week we introduced our Christmas theme by looking at the gospel of John the Apostle and focusing on the person of John the Baptist, who was sent by God to announce the arrival or the advent of the Messiah, and we learned last week that first and foremost, simplicity begins with humility. So this week, we might begin by asking then, what is simplicity? Oster David Foster Wallace, in a college commencement speech, once told a short fable that went like this. There are two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? The fish keeps swimming on, and a a little ways down, one fish turns to the other, and he says, What is water? (laughs) And Wallace pointed out that, that the whole point of the story is that sometimes the most obvious, important realities in life are often the ones that are hardest to see and sometimes the most difficult to talk about. In keeping with the prophecy of Isaiah regarding the advent of the Messiah, we're going to continue today in this somewhat odd place to explore our Advent journey with this person named John the Baptist and the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so before we jump in, I just want to invite you to pray with me one more time and ask for God's blessing on this time of looking into his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You do not remain silent, but you speak through your word, and you speak through the prophets, you speak through your people, and most of all, God, you have spoken to us through your Son, Jesus, who you sent to be the light of the world and to shine in the darkness, to bring us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. So we ask that the light of your Spirit would shine on our hearts today that you would illuminate the path forward for each one of us as we respond to the word that you've given us to go from this place following Jesus as his true disciples. It's his, in his name that we pray. Amen. So the story of John the Baptist is picked up by the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be reading from chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, where it says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Well, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Do not collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, we learned last week that John's mission was to shine a light on God's arrival into his world. This coming of the promised Messiah who was unexpectedly the very creator himself disguised in the common flesh and blood body of a human person named Jesus to himself become the savior of the world that he created. And John's role was to begin to, to try and help people to see what was hidden in plain sight, to invite them to begin to adjust their vision so that they could see beyond what they had been conditioned to perceive in their daily routines of living to a deeper reality that was hidden in the ordinary right in front of them. And right from the start, John comes out swinging, doesn't he? <laughs> You brood of vipers, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Merry Christmas. <laughs> now, while John's definitely speaking intensely here, these words are likely not re received quite so harshly to the crowd that's listening to him because in the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, a Hebrew crowd would have likely been more accustomed to this kind of prophetic speech, and these are people who we know the story tells us had come out because they were already receptive to his message of repentance, and they were looking for something more out of the lives that they were living. They were anticipating a movement of God in their community, and so what we can see is this favorable response that they have is, well, what should we do then? Right? They're not angry at him. They're, they're saying, we hear you. How do we respond? What, what can we do to this message that you're giving us. And we know that John is a messenger sent by God to, to help people uh, recognize God when he arrives. And the question, to, the answer to the question that the people ask him, John offers these three instructions to the plentiful simplicity, to the tax collectors, generosity, and to the soldiers, contentment. These will be our three themes for the remainder of our Advent season. As we see here, to various people in different social economic circumstances, John provides a kind of countercultural way of swimming against the tide of the practices of the world in which they live so that their lives can begin to produce fruit, as he said it, that is in keeping with the repentance that they've come to respond to. Simplicity generosity, and contentment. Three key ingredients that will also help open our eyes to recognize the God who is among us, often in disguise, and open our hearts to perhaps receiving his son in new ways this Christmas season. John the Baptist shows up saying, pay attention, Wake up, people. The time is now. It's happening. Everything that you've been waiting for and longing for and asking God for is here. 
but you'll miss him if you don't pay attention because he's in plain sight, but you might not recognize the way he's coming to you. In verse 16, John says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's just an older fish swimming along, passing by some younger fish saying, Howdy, boys. How's the water? What should we do then, the crowd asks. It's their way of saying, what is water? What is the obvious thing that we might not be seeing, that, that, that we're in being invited to respond to? The, so, so those who are looking for God's answer for a Savior and who don't want to miss His arrival in their lives, John says that anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none, and who has food should do the same. So for the people in Advent waiting for the arrival of Messiah and Christmas, eager to see God in their midst, John starts by going right to talk about their closets and their refrigerators. What is water? In a word, he's talking about simplicity. John says that simplicity is when it enables our human eyes to see God in new ways. And yet, as we learned last week, sometimes the simple thing can be the hard thing. The most obvious and important realities are often the most difficult to see and the hardest for us to talk about. What is water? To expand the picture of the importance of simplicity, we can turn to the life of Jesus himself. You might remember in Luke chapter 18, we can observe a conversation that he has with a man that to us has come to be known as the the rich young ruler. And in verse 18, it says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's important for us that we don't misunderstand the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach. The man is not asking Jesus, how do I get to heaven when I die? That wasn't his question. That's more of a modern take on the salvation that God has promised us in the scriptures and that we've applied to our lives to somehow say that uh, all of God's promises will one day become fulfilled and, and that day is off in the future and so I can live my life differently now because I'm just waiting for the day when God's going to come and make it all right. I love how Pastor Tyler Stanton puts it when he says, The man is asking, how do I experience the life that is truly life? 
Because whenever we read the term eternal life on the pages of Scripture, it has to do with both the quantity of life, but also the quality of life. So it is a kind of life that never stops, but more profoundly, it's the kind of life that you actually want to never stop living. God does not try to get people into heaven, he says. God tries to get heaven into people. Until heaven covers every square inch of his creation. Now, we know that in Jesus' day, to be young and to be wealthy was to be considered to be blessed by God. It was the blessed life. It was the good life. You obviously had done something to earn God's favor that you would be blessed with the kind of wealth and status that comes along with that kind of a position. And so here's this young, wealthy, supposedly blessed by God, Hebrew young man who's coming to this Jewish rabbi who's kind of this radical rabbi that is inviting people to consider that maybe there's another way to live and there's a a better way to go. And he says, what is your understanding of the scriptures? Because if I'm living the blessed life today, it feels a little underwhelming, (laughs) It's not fulfilling all the things that everybody says it's cracked up to be. And Jesus says, what? You know the commandments, meaning the Ten Commandments. And then he starts naming them, adultery, murder, stealing, giving false testimony, honoring your father and mother. But interestingly, Jesus only names five of the ten. And the commandments, we we could say, are divided into two groups. There there, there are six of them that that have to do with kind of this behavioral external living, and then there's four that are all about the heart's devotion to God. You might remember those, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord. You shall remember the Sabbath. And keep it holy. And then there's this group that Jesus names that are all about this outward behavior and how our devotion to this one God translates into love for neighbor and our relationships with other people and how Jesus identifies all those years later is that you can't really have one without the other. And Jesus is showing this young man, he's saying, you're keeping all of the outward rules. You look great on the outside. You're a wonderful God follower in practice until you realize that your heart is is not given fully to me. I don't have your undivided devotion. And and you're going to keep searching for the life that is truly life until you realize that your heart needs to be unified in your love and your devotion to God. So what's dividing the man's heart? What are the other gods that are competing for his affection? Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Again, Jesus is speaking in the present tense. 
not the future tense. He talks about the eternal quality of life for this young man in the now, heavenly treasure that's available for his life in the moment, in the real world. Today, the kingdom of God breaks in, Jesus says, to the ordinary lives of ordinary people who are radical enough to be willing to trade anything and everything to receive it. And that's what Jesus is saying to this man. Lose the life you have and you'll find even greater life, the one that you're seeking. But sadly, the man walked away and rejected the invitation because he was very wealthy. Or or a more accurate translation would be because he had many possessions. And then Jesus said aloud, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those who have many possessions and all kinds of stuff to experience the life that is really life. How hard it is to to see the kingdom of God in your midst because your heart is divided and your desires are going after all of these things. Jesus also used parables to reveal truths that were hard to see and difficult to talk about. In Mark chapter 4, in the parable of the soils, you might remember that one. Jesus talked about how the good news message of the kingdom of God lands differently on different people. And the inner environment of people's hearts are what determines the potential fruitfulness of that word and the presence of the kingdom to produce fruit, keeping in repentance. If we jump right to the third kind of soil, Jesus says in Mark 4, verse 18, still others like seed among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, And the desires for other things come in, Jesus say, and they strangle the word. They suffocate the life that is truly life. And the ability to have that word grow, making it ultimately unfruitful in our lives. In other words, Jesus is saying, having a lot of stuff can actually detract you and distract you from the kingdom of God in your midst between the the eternal quality of life that we're longing for and the material possessions that we collect along the way as we go, between the kind of life that never is exhausted and, and the many things that we put our hands to that are expiring the very minute we take them up in our hands. The one fish looks at the other fish swimming in the water and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? What is water? Do we know the water that we're swimming in? In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Now, Jesus is not saying that the only way that you can follow him is by taking a vow of poverty and and doing what he suggests this rich young ruler needed to do is to, to give up all of his possessions. That's not the lesson that the Bible is teaching us. What Jesus definitely is saying is that if it's my kingdom that you want, if it's eternal life that you want to experience, then the perpetual unchecked conspicuous consumption is like poison to your soul. Jesus is not anti-wealth. This is actually not about wealth or poorness. It's about the competition for your heart. And where are your desires leading you? What is getting your attention? What is gathering your time, your talent, and your treasure? It's about the accumulation of stuff in our lives and the perpetual desire for more stuff that can blind our eyes to the very presence of God in our midst and cause us to miss the life that is truly life. It's this deceitfulness of wealth, Jesus says, that causes us to desire more of it, not realizing it, that it's actually poisoning the very life that Jesus died to give us. And so we seek to pursue a simple Christmas this year. The question of the rich young ruler for us then might become more, what is competing for your undivided devotion to Jesus? Who or what has your heart? What is blinding your eyes to to the work of God in your midst and to the movement of his spirit and the ways God is inviting you out of the darkness of your own life and into his marvelous light? And are you willing to freely let go and give away anything and everything that might compete for that in your own life? Or are we like the rich young ruler who sadly walks away from Jesus because we just can't imagine letting go of all the stuff that we have? What should we do then, the crowd asks. And to the plentiful, John says, clean out your closets and clothe those who are naked and needy. Clean out your pantry and your refrigerator and share your extra bread with the hungry and those who who don't have three square meals a day. To the plentiful, John says, simplicity is the answer. And that begs the question, who are the plentiful? Who are the rich? In our country, we can kind of guess who the rich are, right? I mean, we can look at Bezos and his fancy yacht sailing around the world, and we can go, well, that ain't me. (laughs) Let's consider some of the realities of life in the world in which we live. If you make over $34,000 a year as an individual, you're in the wealthiest 1% on the planet. The average personal income is $9,733 a year. At least 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day, and 1 billion people live on less than $1 a day. 82% of the population does not own a car. Nearly half of the world lacks basic sanitation and clean drinking water. As many as 828 million people, about 10% of the global population, regularly go to bed hungry at night. 
25,000 people daily die from hunger-related causes, and 10,000 of them are children. Less than half the world owns a computer. Less than 7% has a college education. I have a bike, two cars, multiple ride-hailing apps available on my phone. I have a home where everyone has a bed to sleep in. There's AC in the summer. There's heat in the winter. I've got lights in every room, two TVs with cable and internet, and multiple streaming channels. I have speakers that play music from my phone on demand. I can bathe daily, sometimes twice daily. I've got multiple taps bringing unlimited clean water right into my kitchen and my bathrooms. I've never had to walk to a well or other source of water to try and collect enough water for the day for my family. I've got a fridge and a pantry that's so full of food we probably won't be able to eat it all in a year. It's not just that I'm going to eat today, but I get to choose my preference of what I choose to eat today. I have more clothes in my closet than I will wear in a year. I have an iPhone, an iPad, and a computer. I have a college education, and some mornings I will actually pay $5 for a cup of coffee, which would get a good portion of the world to Thursday. And on top of everything else, if it came right down to it, I have friends and I have family who would never let me spend a night on the street. Brothers and sisters, reading the scriptures, listening to Jesus, and taking an honest look at the world we live in, I have to confess to you this Christmas, I am the rich young ruler. I'm the one to whom John says, your overstuffed closet and your overstocked pantry need to be reduced and it needs to be shared and you need to get in touch with people who have less than you do and who need your help and your time and your talent and your treasure. Because when you do that, you'll be able to see the presence of Jesus in your life more clearly. You'll be able to understand the kingdom of God at a deeper level, and you will begin to discover the life that is truly life. This is the water. This is the water. This is the water. Why can't we see it? How can we be swimming in such a deep ocean of this water and not be aware of it and not be, be moved by it, not be challenged by the words of Jesus in our own lives? And it's because consumerism has become our default setting. In our society and in our culture, we've accepted a set of, of norms by looking and comparing to ourselves to the people around us uh, that, without ever really thinking about how we uh, are related to the rest of the world and what God would really want for us. We're constantly conditioned to compare ourselves and to be in competition with each other and, and to be completely dissatisfied with the life that we have and the stuff that we have, somehow believing the lie that, that we need more and more. And if we get more that somehow we're going to be happy, but we never are, and yet we keep living the same life, hoping that somehow it's going to be different. Consumerism as a default setting for a lifestyle means that it becomes a, a constant, addicted pursuit of more. And our world is giving us the ability to shop for more stuff right in our, the palm of our hands. In fact, we can order stuff and it'll deliver right to our front door. 
But consumerism is fast food. It, it masks the deeper hunger and the nutrition that we need spiritually to be able to, to grow and to produce food, fruit that is in keeping with repentance. It doesn't fill us with life that is life and the vitality to go on living in a dark and a hurting world. Consumerism is our default setting. And this Advent season, which John the Baptist framed as a time for simplicity, so that our eyes might be open to the advent of God and the arrival of Jesus in our life, has become in our culture the prime season for rampant, unchecked consumption and that the whole holiday has become about stuff. What kind of lie from the pit of hell has taken the greatest event that has ever happened in the coming of God into the world and made it about material stuff? And we've accommodated ourselves to this constant, addicting, endless pursuit of more. This is the water. Now, it's also important to hear that Jesus' response to this rich young ruler wasn't a rebuke. It was an invitation. Throughout the centuries of the Christian tradition, simplicity has been one of the spiritual disciplines that, that many have pursued and encouraged other, others to learn about. Many monastic traditions especially were based on removing a majority of all worldly possessions in order to better forgo the attachments to life in this world so that we could better become attached to God. Now, while there's a lot to commend about the merits of a truly simple life, and there's a lot that we can learn, I'd like to suggest that such a lifestyle might be too austere and too severe for the average Christian, and I don't think that's exactly what Jesus was, was teaching. And so for us, perhaps the question might be this year of whether or not God is inviting us to at least consider pursuing a simpler life, if not a truly simple life. And maybe we can just simply begin to dip our toe in the water. By saying, God, what would a, what would a simpler life look like for me? How can I begin to divest myself of some of the, the stuff that I have and that I, I shop for and that I'm always buying and that I'm accumulating that, that I don't really need and begin to look with eyes of where I can find ways of helping those who have less than I have? Where I can invest my time and energy to begin to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be a blessing to those who are in need so that I can see the, the kingdom of God in my midst and I can experience more of the life that is truly life. But again, keep in mind, simple isn't always easy. And having a simple Christmas this year may be one of the biggest challenges that we in America would have to choose. For Jesus, the question isn't about going into poverty, it's about stewardship. Money is not the root of all evil, the love of money is the root of all evil. In reality, the fears that are connected to all of this pursuit of materialism and things and stuff really belie the deeper question that we all struggle with, and it's whether or not who I am is good enough, just as I am.
And that fear gets preyed upon by a culture that wants you to believe that you're not good enough the way you are and that if you just buy a little bit more stuff, you're going to be happier. And, and, and the ways that you can tell is you can look at the people who are famous and you can look at the people who are rich and you can say, they have the life that everybody wants until you pull back the curtain and you realize, hmm, that is not the life that is truly life. Greed or the attachment to what we have and what we want can take up residence in your heart, whether you're rich or poor. And Jesus' call is a call to steward the things that he's given us as resources that come from him that aren't things that we own or possess in our own right. And when we begin to have a more biblical perspective on how God wants us to view our stuff and our money and wealth, we begin to experience a greater freedom to let go of those things that aren't what God has for us and to give life away in ways that allow us to be generous, modeling ourselves after the life of God that he revealed in his son Jesus. The question becomes, does the stuff that I have and the stuff that I desire and the stuff that I, I, I think about and I plan to buy and, and, and all of my lists and the things that I hope for compete with my devotion to God? Do they somehow take my desiring ability and focus it on other things so that I'm actually not desiring God in the way that he's designed me to and I forget to take time to, to, to give God my devotion and to allow him to shape my heart because I'm spending so much time focused on all these other things? Can we truly say with David in Psalm 24, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... I think, again, I'm the rich young ruler. The Lord is my shepherd. I am filled with want. I want and want and want and want. The second question related to that is, if you really look at your life and you look at your garage and you look at your pantry and you look at your closet and you look at all the places where you've stuffed all the stuff that we can't even fit into a house anymore, how much of it do you really need? And if the answer to the question is that you don't need a lot of it, can you give it away or can you get rid of it? Can you downsize? Can you remove some of the clutter so that your eyes can become clearer to see where God is at work in your midst? The life that Jesus lived is speaks even louder than anything that he had to say. And if we celebrate at Christmas his coming into the world, we acknowledge his voluntary surrender of his very right to godhood and power. Every privilege, every comfort he came to give away, to spend on us, mostly on people who would treat his offering flippantly and without gratitude, and yet nonetheless, he continues to give and give and give. And if you want the life of Jesus, you've you got to live the life of Jesus. And, the one, and one of the most overlooked practices of Jesus' life is the countercultural way of simplicity. So what should we do then? That's what the crowd asks, right? What do we do? Take the shirt off your, your back. Take the food out of your pantry. Give it to somebody who's in need. 
Do something to divest yourself of this cultural need to always want more and to be satisfied and to learn generosity and contentment with what we have and to be grateful for the life that God has given us. Richard Foster defines simplicity this way. He said, simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. Simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. For Jesus, it's a question of the heart. As we come to a close, hear the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 32 to 34 again, where he says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And again, Jesus isn't saying store up treasure in heaven so someday when you die, you'll be able to open your treasure chest and enjoy it. God wants to put heaven in your heart today. Seeking greater simplicity of material possessions and a readiness to share all that we have is the outward lifestyle that flows from this inward reality that comes from a transformed heart by the love of God. Ultimately allows us to find treasure in things that will never expire rather than all the things of this world that we know are simply passing away. And in this way, the Bible tells us that simplicity is the secret sauce of the abundant life. Simplicity is the secret sauce of the abundant life. It's the way to find the life that is truly life. It's the secret weapon that Jesus gives us to combat our anxiety and our worry and our fear and our busyness and, our, and, and to overcome our exhaustion and our burnout and the financial stress and the debt that we carry and all of the things that our modern society has come to represent to us. Jesus says simplicity is the secret sauce to the abundant life. For those who are plentiful... Simplicity is the way to the fullest kind of living. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are always inviting us to see more of you, to understand your heart for us at a deeper level. And God, today as we enter into a simple Christmas and we consider the water in which we swim, Give us the courage to hear your words, not as a rebuke, but as an invitation, an invitation to turn our hearts back to you in a way that helps us to discover the life that is truly life, the one that we, they were, we're seeking for and hoping for, and help us to know because of what you've revealed in the giving of your son and raising him to new life, we are a good enough just the way we are. And we can let everything else go to focus on the priorities of your kingdom and your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.